0: Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast.
1: So, as I said, my name is Fenella Kernoban. It's fantastic to be here this evening and to be your your host. I'm so excited to to be here to hear from these uh, incredible women to talk about art and neuroplasticity and the linkages between the two. Uh, It is a pretty packed house, so let's get the ball rolling with a big round of applause for all of you to make you feel good. So you're going to be hearing uh, a series of talks and then we're going to follow that up with uh, a panel conversation and then we'll open up the questions to the floor. We know that science has taught us that the brain has the capacity to change, that it is not fixed, that it can heal itself and that in response to various experiences that we can create neural pathways and that we can adapt. Humans make art. Who here makes art in this room? Fantastic. Who here loves to look at art and evaluate art? Right, We all do. There's something in that, and that's what we're going to be discussing tonight. You're going to be hearing about the role of that and how that helps our brain to heal and and to adapt as well. Uh, Our our researchers this evening include medical researchers, uh, some of whom are focusing at both ends of the demographic spectrum. There's youth mental health, uh, of course, those working in dementia... We also have art practitioners as well. They're going to be telling you about their work, about the programs and the projects that they do or they're involved with, and of course the impact on the brain. And and trust me, you're going going to be blown away. They've got some fantastic things to share with you tonight. Um, So, without further ado, are you ready to hear from our speakers? I should hope so. Let me introduce them to you first, however. In the arts corner, it's like a battle, it's not. In the arts corner, we're joined this evening by Jill Nichol, who is the Director of Audience Engagement Museum at the Museum of Contemporary Art. She's committed to making art accessible in as many ways as possible, and she's one of the driving forces of the artful program at the Museum of Contemporary Art. Thank you for joining us, Jill. Yeah. <laughs> also joining us is Bernadette Harvey, who is an acclaimed soloist. And a chamber musician. She's a senior lecturer of piano and piano pedagogy at the Sydney Conservatorium of Music. It's great to have you here, Bernadette. Thank you. Samantha Mears, who is second from uh, my left, is the co founder and trustee of the Nelson Mears Foundation and a director of a number of art institution boards. So, welcome to you too, Samantha. You. So, there are arts people now on the medical side in the Medical Mm -hmm. Corner, we have Professor Sharon Naismith, who is a neuropsychologist. She specializes in dementia research. She's the head of the Healthy Brain Aging Program in the Brain and Mind Center at the University of Sydney and the Charles Perkins Center. Welcome to you, Sharon. (laughs) And our first speaker tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is none other than Liz Scott. And she's going to be looking at this question from a mental health perspective. She's the Associate Professor uh, and director of youth space inpatient services for young people at St Vincent's Private Hospital. On that note, a huge round of applause for all of our speakers and would you please welcome Liz Scott.
0: Thank you very much for that introduction. And it's a great honor to be here tonight and from the interest that we've had and the wider interest in the community, it's clear that this is a really important issue for everybody. And I wanted to talk about Um, some things that I guess are very important to me. I wanted to share with you how beautiful our brains really are, about how important it is that we look after them and nurture them throughout our lives, about how I wished when I was younger that I knew what I knew then, what I knew now about the brain and taking care of my brain. I would have made different decisions. But as I get older, I feel I'm in a better place to understand and know how to make my brain as good as it can be in the future. So, art has evolved with humankind. It's, it's true for every culture throughout history. And it's a powerful vehicle for the transmission and generation of ideas about our society and about our world. It's been really important for selection, for adaptation, for uh, allowing us to survive in our environment. But it has changed over time. And I was struck by asking my kids about how they see classical art and what they see a lot of now is memes on the internet. Very different from how I saw these pictures when I was younger, but comforting to know that they're still out there in the community, having an impact on our brains. And I also wanted to talk about how we see our brains has changed dramatically over time. When I started my career in neurosciences in the... um, at the right century in the 1980s, <laughs> the brain appeared to me in a bottle or as a very gray piece of tissue from a post-mortem, post-mortem sample on a microscope slide. Really hadn't changed very much from what Cajal saw in the early 1900s when he made these very beautiful pictures of brain cells and their connections. And if I get a chance to see his original drawings, they are beautiful. But wow, how that has changed in this century we now see the brain really differently. These are images from one of our PhD um, candidates, Christy Smith, from electron microscopy work that she's doing in her lab. We can now see the brain and neurons and the microglia that, that support the brain, the immune cells of the brain, and how the brain works in real life and in real time. And this is supposed to be a moving picture, but it's not moving, sadly. So what you do see is this firework display as you go through the different slides. Oh, there it is. It started. Of these amazing ways that we can look at our brain now in real time. And that gives us really important ways of being able to understand how our brain develops, how it changes over time, and what it is that we can do that, it, that has the, the most influence on that. We also know a lot about, a lot more about how the brain is connected. This is from the Human Connectome Project, which is part of Obama's Brain Initiative, which has started to map out the connections between different brain regions. And we know that these connections are organised in very structured grids. They're not random or haphazard. They're extremely organised, and that's going to allow us to test over time how we see our brain, what changes, what changes our brain connectivity over time. We also know that our brain is not fixed or static. We used to think that our brain couldn't regenerate, that whatever we had, we were kind of stuck with over life. We know now that that is not true. Our brain continues to change and respond to environment and activity throughout our lives. But there are some periods of our life that are more important than others. And particularly in this critical period of early life between zero to three, where our brain is making millions and millions and millions of connections all the time, rapidly, in response to environment. So kids are making new brain connections at an extraordinary rate, faster than any supercomputer we've ever thought about. And then in adolescence is, a, is the next kind of critical period, where you start to prune these brain connections to organize them into more efficient ways of transmitting information, to be able to process information rapidly, to be able to derive cognitive flexibility and pattern recognition that is really important for adult thinking and learning. This is also the time when some of those things can go wrong. We can over prune, things can happen, and we can develop some of the major mental health disorders that we then see in adult life. The other critical brain stage which is the stage where I'm beginning to enter into, is that later in life, when you start to lose your neuroplasticity, your brain plasticity, where you have to work much harder to maintain your connections and your brain function over time. So there are plenty of opportunities to think about how we improve our cognitive capacity, what we call our mental capital, which is so valuable in our community, across our lifespan. One of those critical times is our early, early life environment. So, an enriched environment in early life is going to improve our speed, our brain development, and enhance learning. And we can see some evidence of this from studies which have looked at young people learning musical instruments, for instance. So, music training improves your auditory processing skills in your brain. That helps with your language acquisition. That helps with comprehension. That helps with problem-solving. That helps with being able to learn maths and science later on. We also know that learning a second language gives you changes in your brain that last throughout your lifetime. So there are studies now looking at older, older people who are bilingual or multilingual, which shows that it delays the onset of Alzheimer's disease. So potentially, and Sharon will talk a bit more about this, producing art, creating art, or being engaged in the process of experiencing art, has great capacity to change our brain, change our thinking, and help us drive creativity and innovation, both in arts and science. But it's not all about brain plasticity and neural networks. Art has a wider effect on our brain. It also can drive the release of dopamine in the reward and pleasure centers in our brain. It can help with stress reduction. It can help with improving self-esteem and social skills. It can help with the development of empathy. And really importantly, it can help with social connectedness, things that are really important for our community. This is a a picture by (laughs) Henry Sambono, and it depicts the work of the Northern Territory Mental Health Worker Program, which was supported by Beyond Blue. And the picture shows the important collaborative partnerships between individuals, their health services, community agencies, educational institutions, but importantly, cultural agencies that are really important to improve the mental health of Indigenous people. And I'll just give you an example of the power of art in promoting resilience in young people. This is a project by Ani Joy Smith at Alexandria Park School, not very far from here, in her Year 5 and 6 class where she's using a community arts project based on the desert women desert weavers to promote social cohesion, empathy, social connectedness in her class of 30 students who range from kids within the selective stream to many kids from non-English speaking backgrounds with very low levels of literacy to kids with autistic spectrum disorders and kids with, from the local behavioural school. So an example of how that transition, that critical transition into adolescence There are many things that we can do to build resilience. I also want to talk, lastly but not least, about art in recovery and about our partnership with the Nelson Mears Foundation to run an arts program for young people with severe mental health disorders at the Brain and Mind Center. And it was really Sam's commitment to saying that she, Sam Mears, saying that she wanted to demonstrate that art in conjunction with health could really change health outcomes. It wasn't just about giving people something to do. It could actually improve recovery. This program, which was run by Ginny Jahu, one of our PhD students at the University of Sydney, we had 400 young people go through the Anxious Art Program, which was um, hosted at the National Art School in Sydney. And the aim of this program was not to develop great art, produce great art, it was really to take a group of young people who had severe mental health disorders, who were very socially isolated, out of school, and help them get back into a social setting again to reduce anxiety, to be able to develop social skills, and to be able to promote their recovery to get back into social participation again. And this is a quote from a young, um, a young person who attended that group who had very severe distressing command auditory hallucinations. His quote is, art showed me how to draw what I see and not what the voices say in my head. This young person, like the majority of the young people attending that program, was able to go back to school. He's now almost finished university. So it demonstrates really how much social connectedness helps to promote recovery. So I had some important questions that came to me out of this process of thinking about this talk. How do we really harness the power of art in driving connectedness resilience and recovery in people with brain and mind disorders and how and to improve the well-being of our community how do we make sure that our young scientists are exposed to creativity that will help them improve their thinking processes and that artists have scientific literacy how do we make the best young minds and brains that we can to drive innovation and discovery to solve some of the important problems that face our world. Thank
1: you. Um, thank you very much Liz for for opening up the, the conversation tonight and hopefully some of those questions may, may indeed we get some answers or some kernels of answers there as well. Okay, so from Liz's research and what she's been doing now to the work of Professor Sharon Naismith as well, uh, in particular working uh, in dementia research, Sharon's going to be telling us all about it, but also about uh, a collaboration that they've been doing with the MCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art. Please welcome Sharon.
2: Thank you, it's interesting, I can't actually see anybody, um, <laughs> lights are so bright, but I'm very excited to be here and kind of see you all, I'm excited not only to be talking about art, but also because my position at the university is actually funded by Picasso, or a generous gift to the university of this Picasso painting, of which four research chairs were established at the Charles Perkins Centre, so it's very fitting for me indeed to be talking about this topic. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about the hardcore science. So if you can keep your thinking caps on just for seven minutes, I believe I take, um, (laughs) I will just give you a little bit of um, information about the brain and art and what we're actually doing when we're viewing and engaging in art. Um, Interestingly, there's a couple of key streams that are involved in the appreciation of art or the visual aesthetic experience of art. One is the ventral stream, which is what enables our brain to perceive objects, um, the what stream, so to perceive colour and texture and detail and shape and size, and the other one is the where stream, so we know these two key parts of the brain are very critical for the appreciation of art. Um, but interestingly um, a recent meta-analysis that looked at all the different studies of art appreciation of 286 people so a meta-analysis is where we pull all the data together and get the best level of evidence for what are we actually doing or what is the brain actually doing when we're viewing art found that actually we do have some functional specialisation so while we do have this diversity and the whole of the brain is really engaged in art there are distinct forms of art that seem to elicit certain or functional connections in our brain so for example when we're viewing portraits, we activate a part of the brain called the fusiform um, gyrus and also the amygdala. So many of you might have heard of the amygdala. It's very important for emotions and part of our key limbic system. And our amygdala really helps us to lay down the emotional meaning of certain memories that we, that we uh, want to um, create. Also, if you look at abstract art, then a different part of the brain towards the back, the posterior cingulate is involved, also involved in the limbic system and also involved in memory, but more specialised to look at abstract art. By contrast, when we're looking at real visual scenes, we activate different areas, and again, if we're looking at body sculptures. So, parts of our brain are highly specialised for looking at this, and there is this functional uh, segregation. We also know that there's some truth to the, the notion that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So judging art as beautiful actually does activate the amygdala, this key structure of the limbic system, um, and also parts of the orbitofrontal cortex, which is really interesting because patients with dementia that have problems in this area do change in their expression of art, Their art actually changes in in the evocative kind of experience that Um, that they can create with their art. They get more technically proficient, but actually the art expression itself um, changes. We also know that art activates the reward systems of the brain. Um, So this is also important. And we know that the brain actually responds differently when we're looking at art that we view as desirable or if we have indifference or we view art as undesirable. So highly specialised in terms of the emotions that it it actually um, creates. But does art actually really promote neuroplasticity? And what do we need to do to promote neuroplasticity when we're engaging in art? Well, unfortunately, there aren't a huge amount of studies that have really examined this. But one um, in particular that I thought was very interesting and a well-conducted study looked at young artists um, and looked at their engagement in art for three months and compared it to people that didn't. And what they found is that art and engaging in art does actually reorganise the frontal cortex of the brain. And so they looked at the integrity of the white matter in the brain, the tracks that connect all our neurons together and enable the brain to talk to other parts of the brain. And interestingly, they um, showed that parts of it were demyelinated. So we often see demyelination in certain clinical diseases. And they interpreted this as that it's actually in many ways engaging art is actually losing our inhibition, opening up the other parts of the brain that are more involved in creativity. And certainly there are some evidence to support this from different types of dementia as well where people get more creative by losing that inhibition. And so that begs the question then, can art actually be helpful when we're thinking about trying to promote brain plasticity, particularly in the area that I work in, which is in older people. Well, firstly, I don't know how many of you have family members who might be in nursing homes or aged care facilities, but it's pretty boring, isn't it? So, you know, only about 10% of time um, is spent engaging in meaningful or therapeutic activities. So there is this notion that older people actually experience this excess disability. Their functional capacity um, far outweighs or incapacity far outweighs the actual level of impairment that they have. Unfortunately, we have no drugs that cure dementia. Um, We we also don't have any drugs that really work well on behavioural symptoms, depression, um, other forms of agitation and anxiety that older people have. So we really need to think about programs that we can utilise to engage people. And so in this respect, art has become very popular. Um, We know also that people with dementia do not change in their preference for art. So people's preference for art stays very stable. So there have been studies that have examined people with even fairly severe Alzheimer's disease and shown that their... um, Feelings towards different forms of art is actually very stable over different forms in time. And that ventral stream of the brain I told you about remains fairly intact, so people can still appreciate major components of art, such as colour and object. There is some distortion later in the disease, but a lot of that still stays intact. So not only for appreciation of art, but also for the production of art. And so in the early 2000s, um, uh, the first program was um, established, Meet Me at MoMA, which was actually just a one-session program for people with dementia and their carers, a 90-minute session they conducted, unfortunately, when the gallery was closed. So it might have been a fairly isolated experience, but nonetheless, they uh, reported that they um, had increased stimulation intellectually and also social connectedness. Um, We actually then did a study in Australia at the National Gallery and I believe that there is a program still running there for people with dementia and this was once a week for six weeks. Um, And again, people showed that they were very, very engaged and it was reported that people became much more animated when engaging in these programs. However... What we're really interested, I guess is 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 engagement in art um the key to neuroplasticity? Is it simply enough just to go along and view art, look at art, appreciate art in that way, or do you really need to be making art and producing art? So hands up again, those of you that said they're making making art or engaged well that's really good news because this study actually looked at <laughs> retired older adults and showed that actually engaging in art was quite critical for brain plasticity so they compared people that simply viewed art or evaluated art cognitively so they had discussions about art versus those that were actually cr- involved in the creation with an art artist educator and this particular study was a 10-week intervention and the the brain slides are pretty um, complex there but you'll see that I've circled on the right hand side there. These are the brain images looking from the side of the head and also looking from the front of the head and you'll see in the top two boxes, the ones where we look at from the top of the head down which is the far right column that there are actually lots of orange blobs there towards the the uh, back of the brain, so towards the back of the picture, and those orange blobs are the areas of the brain that actually changed when people were engaging in art, so in these frontal parietal networks towards the back of the brain. In contrast, you'll see from the bottom two pictures um, in the area that's circled that there are no changes in those people that were simply viewing art. So some studies in dementia have also looked at this, but um, not to a very high quality. So there is a study, one UK study, where they then actually started to involve art making um, in the process. And they only had six people in their study. And afterwards, they did an analysis or had a discussion with the um, participants and the carers and found that people reported through the interactions that their memories were improved by um, engagement in this program. There was another study in the UK that looked at um, engagement in contemporary art versus traditional art, and that was over eight sessions. And again, a small study of 12 people, but again, getting through this concept of being more socially included, more socially connected, um, people felt better, they had improved quality of life. However, in general, the research has been played by very poor study design. So as scientists, we like to conduct these very rigorous randomised control trials. So, someone gets the intervention and someone doesn't get the intervention, and therefore we know that people are not just simply improving by having a nice cup of tea in discussion. So we were very keen to do this and produce um, a somewhat more rigorous study, certainly not to the highest level because it's very difficult to do, but we wanted to conduct an initial study really looking at the feasibility, acceptability and signs, that we may be actually able to induce neuroplasticity in the brain. So we forged this wonderful uh, partnership with the Museum of Contemporary Art and decided to conduct a ten-week randomised control trial um, of art engagement um, and viewing. We coupled both things together for people with dementia and their carers. Um, so today we've enrolled 112 people in this study. I'm standing here talking about all this, but of course I don't do anything other than turn up with my clipboard and our team's clipboard <laughs> and evaluate whether people are getting better in terms of their memory and visual functions and that kind of thing. And the M- MCA are doing all the hard work here and it's wonderful to see an organisation train all their staff. I've been to their training sessions where they've trained 25, 30 people, artist educators, how to deal with people with dementia, which is really quite inspiring to see. So I'd like to finish just by sharing with you a video. We've got a couple of videos, but this one that was uh, created by the Today Show I think is really nice as it captures the experience of our participants in the gallery and then Jill will go into some more detail of the actual program with
3: you. Thank you. Well, a Creative
4: New Program is offering hope to dementia patients and untapping talents that many of them actually never knew that they had. It's part of an Australian study looking at how art might slow or even stop the disease in its tracks and I was lucky enough to go along to Sydney's Museum of Contemporary Art this week to find out exactly how it works. Art, we know, can be a powerful thing. It can awe and it can inspire. But here at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney, researchers are looking at how the creative process and art could do a whole lot more. We have this beautiful arrangement here today. So what we'd really like you to do today is take a good look around the table and find something that interests you. The gallery has teamed up with researchers for an important program adding colour and creativity to the lives of patients with dementia. First, they're taken through the gallery to check out what's on show. Then, it's time to get hands-on.
1: In a way, it takes me to another world that uh, I've never really experienced before. I find when I'm uh, doing art,
5: Everything is very calm, and uh, I really enjoy that.
4: I think that's my favourite.
5: Yeah, yeah it's mine. Well, he's very
4: excited always coming, um, and it also helps his confidence. It helps him outside of um, art, because it's something for him to discuss. A blue man there, there's a green person there. Many of the participants have never picked up a brush or drawing pencil before getting involved.
3: I came as a reluctant, mm-hmm. Uh, person, brought along by a Lombard, dear friend, and I've just enjoyed it
4: thoroughly. Have you ever been an artist prior to this? Have you ever done art? Never. Never. Wow. I really do believe that art is for everyone, but especially for people who have different needs, that um, this is a safe space for everyone. The program's not just about having fun, it's also part of a groundbreaking dementia study. Researchers at the University of Sydney are hoping it might unlock some secrets of the condition. It's the first
2: study really where we've been able to look at whether art and engaging in art and really kind of engaging the creative part of the brain is able to make a difference not only to people's wellbeing but also to the functioning of the brain. We actually use formal neuropsychology tests that have been developed to um, I guess assess the integrity of the brain in many ways and we're going to be looking particularly at things like memory but also at visual skills. The social impact of what we might be able
6: to discover through this could be enormous. We have the knowledge and the know-how to deliver these programs and if the science tells us that they will have a real effect in the long run, a relatively small amount of of investment could have an enormous impact.
4: It will be some time before researchers can tell if there is any medical impact from art with people with dementia, but until then the program is uncovering talents they never knew they had.
2: One day, if I get a bit more on it, maybe uh, maybe I sell one one day. Or wow, about you about
1: never that. know. <laughs> Excellent.
3: This happened two years ago now, isn't it? No, um, no. Um,
1: and thank you again to Professor Sharon Naismith. So we're, we've heard about what's going on at the MCA, and now let's actually hear from from one of the people who's <laughs> helping to drive the program, Jill Nicol who is the uh, Director of Audience Engagement at the Museum of Contemporary Art, and of course behind Artful. Please make her welcome. Thank you.
3: Thanks, everyone. I'm in awe of um, Liz and Sharon. They can do these talks without notes. I'm afraid I have paper. (laughs) Um, So uh, it's great to be here. Um, I'm going to have the opportunity to share with you more about why the MCA wanted to um, do this program, the Artful program, and some of the deeper levels of engagement that we saw. So, this is uh, the MCA, for those of you that have never been there or seen it. It sits on perhaps one of the most beautiful sites in the whole world, I reckon. Um, that kind of thing is also really important to our participants. You know, they've loved coming to this spot for the, be- you know, for the beauty, the water, the location. Um, we opened uh, an extension to the building in 2012, and this holds our National Center for Creative Learning. So that holds a range of spaces in which lots of great things happen, working with many different groups, schools, early learning, children, adults with disability, young people. But we didn't have a program for seniors, and so it wasn't until we got funding from Vincent Fairfax Foundation in 2015 that we could embark on this research program with Dementia Australia helping and then, of course, the Brain and Mind Centre have been an amazing research partner. So alongside the research question, which is can a creative art program enhance well-being and markers of neuroplasticity in people living with dementia, we at the MCA aim to make a difference within the actual program by creating new connections and experiences through creative engagement with contemporary art. Um, As you've heard and seen, we have a fantastic team of artist educators who deliver our creative learning programs, and they use strategies that they've um, planned together. These strategies are high-quality, intimate, and bespoke, and we wanted to see how well those strategies work um, with this group, with a particular age group, and people with dementia. So the MCA is also part of a global shift within museums and galleries. Uh, We see ourselves as cultural catalysts, as spaces for intercultural dialogue, learning, discussion, and training, playing an important role in lifelong learning, social cohesion, and sustainable development. So in this sense, museums are accountable towards society. And so that's actually a main part of my job, working in that way. So the research element dictated the structure of the program. So groups of six to eight people with dementia and their carers, so that's actually about 12 to 16 people, came fortnightly for five sessions, so that's over a 10-week period. So we ended up with this kind of week off in between And that instigated an unexpected outcome, whereby Michelle, our Artful coordinator, um, created at-home packs, which, um, so the uh, participants took those home and and worked at home with, uh, they're full of art materials and and prompts. And um, I haven't got time to to share really what went on uh, with those, but they had a profound effect. Maybe we can discuss that a bit if we have time later. So, the program itself, it's a two-hour session. People arrive. Uh, We gather in our creative studios, and then only those with uh, dementia go into the gallery uh, with artist educators, and the caregivers uh, spend time together in another space. There are a number of reasons for this, so the main one being to enable um, uh, those with dementia to forge new relationships with each other across a shared experience. Um, The group is small, it's kept intimate, so everyone can have an opportunity to engage. We also found that the space away from the caregivers was often empowering, and we saw a lot more self-expression and a breaking down of inhibitions. Um, People with dementia are so used to looking to their support person to make sure they are saying the right thing. And the carers also acknowledge that they often jump in or finish sentences for them. Um, So, these gallery experiences really brought out surprising new interactions. There can be lots of impromptu singing and dancing. In response to something like this work by Pippa Loddy Pixel Forest, the whole group started spontaneously dancing. One woman dropped her walking stick and started doing low squats. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't got a photo of it, but, uh, you know, (laughs) powerful stuff. And this is the power of contemporary art. Artists make work in many different ways. It's painting, video, sculpture, installation, sound... Anything is at their disposal. So the artful participants experienced a whole range of contemporary practice. So for many of them, this opened them up to a whole new world. It's quite a challenge, but it is this new world, an opportunity to enjoy themselves, move their bodies, and find new ways to communicate. So I'll just take you through um, kind of what else happens in the session. So this is a commission by artist Julia Gorman, and uh, we at the MCA had asked her to make a work that invited people into our resource space, as people used to hover around on the edge and not really go in. So so here here are the group on the edge, like on the other side, starting to talk with the artist educator who's prompting them to, to look at the material, to bend down, touch the floor, touch the material. Um, and that's the actual space inside. It's really beautiful. So then the group are invited to create a performance of their own, to interact with the artwork, to literally use ribbons, take take those shapes off the floor, and make their own patterns and gestures in space. Um, so as I said, for some for some it's really challenging. You know, they've never encountered contemporary art before. Um, Contemporary art, you know, process-based, no fixed meaning. And for those that were in in their past life, doctors or scientists, it's quite hard. Uh, But if they stick with it, huge benefits arise. A participant's wife wrote at the end of the program, everything we do in life is prescriptive. There are a list of instructions and you complete them. This has been really different for us, learning that there is no right or wrong way. Uh, He has really come out of his shell. Um, the group then went into another commission by La- Lara Merritt. Uh, so this is a room that we have which is made specifically for uh, those with a disability. Um, it's a room which in- invites you to explore color and, and painting uh, material to be enveloped and held within that painting. Um, they're drop cloths stained with color and really huge. And you can see, you can see the levels of enjoyment that take place uh, in this kind of uh, room. So then back into the creative studios, where everyone gets a chance to make together. Um, Again, a challenging setup, a huge drop cloth of their own. This is Michelle on the right, um, sharing with everyone what to do. So the plan was to invite everyone to make their own gestural marks, but this time with paint, using rollers, using paintbrushes. Um, everyone's having a good time. But this can only happen because of the immense amount of trust that has been built over those sessions, over that amount of time. Um, this is not art therapy. The facilitators are not art therapists, they're artists. Creating art can bring therapeutic outcomes, but it is not what drives the design of this program. The creative experience is here to open up, and a space for expression rather than as a facilitation tool for particular emotions or memories. And uh, it's also collaborative, as you can see. And you can make your own decisions about what kind of marks you want to make. You can bend, you can stretch, you can get down on the floor. I mean, uh, one of these guys has bone cancer, you know? It's like really amazing Uh, how how everyone rises to the challenge. Because also with challenge comes a sense of achievement, which is really important. when you have dementia. Um, Atmosphere is really important. The mood is lighthearted and relaxed, filled with laughter and connection. Friendship happens. Uh, Some of the carers in particular have ongoing friendships where they meet for lunch outside of the program and have done now for a number of years. Uh, At the end of the session, you get together, you have a cup of tea, of course. Um, Have a laugh, talk about what you've learned. You get your take-home packs. As I said, these packs, Contain those prompts. Um, just want to share with you um, an Instagram post that landed in Michelle's phone last Friday. Um, this is a post by um, Jamie's daughter. Jamie took part in the program two years ago, <clears throat> and in an at-home pack with his daughter, they were invited to paint together. And every day since then, Jamie has painted every day for two years, and just. Been this massively significant transformational experience for him as a person, and for her too. So, nearly there, what can I say? I think I can safely say contemporary art and artists has enabled increased confidence, new sense of self, more independence, mm-hmm. a sense of connection, a reduction in social isolation, which is crucial to this uh, group. Happiness, uh, transformation, and as a participant, Uh, said early on in the program it's waking up something that went to sleep which is a beautiful phrase and so now Sharon and her team are working really hard to bring all the evidence together and all that research will then overlay all this other I don't know do you call them soft outcomes or something like that so it's it's been an immensely powerful experience (laughs) who knows I'm not a scientist this is the bit this is the bit I can talk about so um We are writing a report, get in touch. It will be ready about November. These are the details, and um, just thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: We're all doing squats, oh. low squats later, by the way, <laughs> just to lift the energy up. Uh, Jill Nicholl <laughs> from the MCA. So now we're moving on from the experience of making art, doing art at the MCA, etc., cetera, to, to memory and music. And it's a great pleasure now to hear from pianist and of course lecturer here at the University uh, at the Sydney Conservatorium, Bernadette Harvey. So please make her welcome.
3: <clears throat> a great Thanks, Vanilla.
7: Mm-hmm. Thank you, and I'm honoured to be here amongst such illustrious company uh, representing the powerful art form of music. Um, I'm talking about memory in relation to my performance practice as a classical pianist, and my concern is how to best translate the advances that we've made in science and in neuroscience um, into resilience. Um, for people like me, who are performers. I'd like to start by sharing two images with you. The first is very famous Chinese concert pianist, Yundi Li, and the Sydney Symphony Orchestra in the middle of a concerto performance in Seoul, Korea. The second is another pianist, Alexandre Tarot, performing at Le Poisson Rouge in France. One is quite formal. The pianist is looking quite serious, not looking terribly comfortable, nor like he's having an enormous amount of fun. The other is joyful. His hands are up in the air. He's smiling, if you can see. Um, And the atmosphere uh, is less formal. The difference lies in the fact that Yundi is playing without the music. He's playing from memory, and Alexandre is reading from the score. And if you're anything like the audience in Seoul that night when Yundi was playing, you expect that a classical pianist will always play her repertoire, sometimes 90 minutes' worth in one concert, from memory. But the image of Yundi was taken during a performance which ground to an embarrassing halt. After every pianist's worst nightmare happened, he had a massive memory lapse. Yundi suffered great public and online humiliation, and it was so disruptive that some people in the audience demanded their money back. Having a memory lapse is seen as a real weakness, and so is playing from the score. The following quote is enough to send me into a cold sweat, uh, but one uh, which sets the tone for classical p- piano performance in the early 1900s, and it's still an influential view today. And I quote, only those pianists whose musicianship is broad enough to study their programs in every detail are worth hearing, and it follows without question that such will always play from memory. Any departure from this standard can result only, I love this bit, in an increase of inferior and mentally incapable pianists (laughs) and a lowering of the public performance of our great heritage of masterworks to a degree of emotionalism and insecurity wholly deplorable. (laughs) That is a lot of pressure. (laughs) and has resulted in the magnification of performance anxiety in many pianists. Methods of how to memorise multiplied around the turn of the 20th century, and these remain the standard methods that we as musicians, or we as pianists, speak about today. These are oral, visual, muscle, and analytical. These types have been discussed since the late 1800s and not much has changed, for for performers at least. Studies exist in training the brains of younger musicians, but few, if any, for the ageing pianist's brain. I feel like I'm in the dark at this point in my career, and I'm stumbling across strategies through trial and error and observations of my own to memorize as I get older. Maybe you'd like to know how I memorize a complex piece of music now. So, here we have the fantasy and fugue in D minor, BWV905 by Johann Sebastian Bach. Bach fugues are said to be some of the most complex pieces of music to learn. The first step is that I establish the work's architecture by by identifying how many times and in what key the initial theme is heard. Um, And from this information, I can outline three large key areas. So you'll see I've got these blue, all these colourful lines. Anyway, these blue lines, they continue on the next page and then it turns into a red line and then it returns to a a blue line. Um, So these are the three big key areas of the piece. Then I add permanent and mandatory fingerings. You you can barely make them out, but they're in orange. And these are so important to to memory. I I have to make sure that I strike the key with the same finger each time I go to practice that piece every day. I go on, I add dynamic markings and expressive words um, and this is just the first step in a very long learning process and all this happens before I even sit down at the piano. It wasn't always like this. When I was young, I could play through a piece and memorize it pretty quickly. I could see the notes in my head as I played, and I never looked at the keys of the piano. Even when I was performing at two years old in my first competition, from memory, I looked away from the piano, hearing, feeling, and seeing in my head. My mother said that she discovered I had perfect pitch. Around the age of five or six, of course, I thought I had a superhuman power (laughs) in being able to identify any pitch anybody threw at me. I later discovered that this pitch was finely tuned to the pitch of the piano I practiced on at home. (laughs) Simply my memory working for me. (laughs) But now it's different. Playing with the score, without the score, sorry, is like walking a tightrope. And I wonder, is my brain losing its plasticity? My experience of memory is that it changes over time. And that the four standard types of memory, the oral, the visual, the muscle, the um, analytical, they don't explain why we have memory lapses. And actually, what even is a memory lapse? What happens in my brain when it wanders as I'm playing? Does my brain wander when I'm actually looking at the score? I play with the score, and um, I'd like to know what the difference is between when I'm playing without the score and playing with the score. I'd like to see what that difference is in my brain. But all acts of playing are acts of memory, with or without the score. My technique is a deeply stored muscle memory. Reading music, perfect pitch, all memory. We tend to forget that much of what we do is automatic. Dear friends of mine and colleagues I know about suffer from something called dystonia. Could dystonia and related problems be related to a similar form of memory lapse? What's the difference between where the muscle memory is stored and the area of the brain that controls the initiation of movement? Are they separate or are they in the same area? These are some of the questions that brought me to the Brain and Mind Centre. When everything's working, in in conclusion, when everything's working for me on stage and I'm playing and I'm feeling great, it's just like speaking. It's unconscious. Um, It's the best feeling in the world and it's addictive and it's worth the risk. Thank you.
1: Um, it's thoroughly impressive I I, I was making mud pies at two so, (laughs) (laughs) and I might still be, you never know Um, thank you very much Bernadette Harvey we'll hear a bit more about memory and of course music soon in our panel and I hope you have some great questions for our panelists this evening so start thinking of them, um, but it is a great pleasure now to, to talk to someone who has actually been working very closely with Associate Professor Liz Scott uh, for, the, um, for the program that uh, they were doing uh, called Anxious Art. She is, of course, the co-founder and trustee of the Nelson Mears Foundation. Her name is Samantha Mears. Would you please make her welcome?
6: Thank you, Penella. Um, can I start by saying what an enormous privilege it is to be sharing the stage with uh, these remarkable women? Um, and it is highly ironic that I'm following Bernadette's talk about memory because I need to read from my notes. But, um, now, I also need to uh, start by making a confession. Um, aside from having read the Norman Deutsch book that I'm sure everyone has probably looked at, The Brain That Changes Itself, I know almost nothing about neuroplasticity, um, which I acknowledge is the subject matter of tonight's, uh, tonight's <laughs> session. <laughs> Although, in reading the full description of the, uh, of the, eve- the evening's discussion, it does actually say... Neuroplasticity and more, and so I suspect I'm the and more (laughs) pioneer. So if you can bear with me. Um, Now, I thought I should start by um, telling you a little bit about the Nelson Mears Foundation. Um, We're a private philanthropic foundation that is dedicated to funding the arts. Um, In the 17 years since we were established, um, I've had the privilege of witnessing the way in which our funding gives ideas such as those that are being discussed here tonight a chance to be realised. We fund across the arts spectrum, um, and we fund organizations that use the arts to promote individual well-being, community cohesion, and cultural tolerance, all through the lens of innovative, artistic, and cultural expression. So my perspective tonight is distinctly anecdotal as opposed to scientific. Um, Now I'm often asked, uh, why did we decide to just fund the arts? Now, there are three reasons, and I think it gives context to to the rest of my uh, my discussion tonight. Firstly, we're passionate about the important role that the arts plays in society, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But uh, secondly, we wanted to have the flexibility to communicate across a range of social issues and to be able to create positive social change through our funding program. And we felt that the arts was uh, the best possible mechanism to allow us to do this. And finally, thirdly, we believed that the therapeutic capacity of the arts, their ability to provide a discrete mechanism for dealing with disadvantage and adversity, would offer us the potential to benefit the largest possible cross-section of the community. So over the past 17 years, we've funded over 100 projects throughout Australia across the visual, literary and performing arts spectrum. We've explored issues as diverse as homelessness, Aboriginal disadvantage, climate change, mental illness, literacy, cultural and gender diversity, and human rights. We've worked on a fabulous program, as Liz said, with the Brain and Mind Centre. We've worked with a diverse range of cultural organisations, women's refuges, universities, hospitals, Alzheimer's patients, cerebral palsy sufferers, refugees, and many, many community organisations that create opportunities for marginalised people to re-engage with their communities by disrupting old ways of thinking and creating new narratives. And this is all through the the lens of the arts. In every project, we've seen positive individual and uh, community outcomes around engagement, social inclusion, and well-being. And it gives me such comfort to hear the scientific uh, uh, endorsement of this here tonight. So I promise that I'd explain why I think the arts are so important. So for me, the arts are society's connective tissue. The stories we tell each other through art ignite our imagination They provide inspiration and solace and provide a lens through which to understand the complex world in which we live. And if you'll allow me to be a little bit philosophical, the arts also allow us as a community to express a cultural democracy in which the ideas of many are able to be considered with respect. They encourage the protest, debate and discussion that underlie any great democratic tradition and promote a conversation with multiple voices and diverse perspectives. I've just spent uh, a month in the U.S. at a particularly farcical time in the Trump presidency, so um, if you'll forgive me for saying that in the highly flammable global political environment in which we find ourselves, opportunities to subvert the limitations of our own perspective in order to empathize with those who are different from us are critically important and yet increasingly rare. I believe that the arts provide a safe context in which we can engage with the unfamiliar, with otherness, and consider these issues in an open and more thoughtful way. And surely this is what promotes a more tolerant and inclusive society. Now, Princeton University bioethicist, Pr- Professor Peter Singer, whom many, whose writings many of you will be familiar, he's Australian, has garnered much attention over the years by criticising those who fund the arts. He argues that money directed towards cultural philanthropy would be better spent on the alleviation of human or animal suffering. And whilst it's never easy to argue with someone who seizes the moral high ground, listening to the work of these amazing women here tonight uh, must surely put pay to Professor Singer's disregard of the tangible and intangible outcomes that the arts delivers. There is, of course, also the economic response to Professor Singer, elegantly expressed by Harvard economic historian David Lands, who in considering the relative wealth and poverty of, uh, of nations wrote, If we learn anything from the history of economic development, it is that culture makes all the difference. And what I would also say in response to Professor Singer is that, in my humble opinion, humanity rarely presents itself as a binary equation. It is instead nuanced with a diversity of needs for the body, the mind, and the soul. And I would ask Professor Singer, as he contemplates need from his sandstone turret in Princeton, how we as a society can accept a paradigm that sets mere survival as a standard. I can't imagine a world that sees only bare minimums of human existence as its purpose and yearns for nothing beyond that minimum. Now, leaving the science to one side, to not be hungry and live in a world secure in the viability of Medicare and yet never have the chance to create or enjoy the creations of others. Who amongst us would settle for that as our personal goal or a goal for our children? and what an insult to those in need in our community to constrain their humanity to the bare minimums of physical survival. So, in conclusion, both the practice of art and the participation in a cultural experience releases some of the most positive, noble, and life-affirming feelings that humans are capable of. And I look forward to continuing this very important discussion with my fellow panel members and all of you here tonight. Thank you.
1: So thank you again to each of our panel members for, for their very illuminating um, talks. That really does set up what the topic I- is all about. You know, art and neuroplasticity, are they linked? Well, quite clearly, I think we learned that, that very simply that answer is yes. But let's, let's dig into the subject a bit more deeply. Um, Liz, I'd like to start with you, if, if I may, and, and each of you, please do feel free to, to, uh, to join in at any point. But even though we are all now familiar with neuroplasticity, the fact that it, it that our brains sort of stayed the same and were static that was very entrenched in in the literature for for a very long time. Can you very briefly tell us how this has shifted, how this has gone out into into our, our you know breadth of humanity that we understand it today?
0: So I think like many ideas in you know modern life, it, it, they are, the concept has actually changed really quickly. So we had a long period of time of believing probably like the earth is flat you know, that that was the way things were and, you know, there was some, you know, nothing was really changeable, therefore you got the brain. The brain that you had was the one that you had to live with. Now we realise that's not true. There's plenty of evidence about that. And that has really disseminated out into the wider community, I think, really rapidly. What we don't necessarily know is what to do with that information. I don't think it really has moved into our education system that quickly, for instance. It hasn't transformed our higher education system. I think I think the community is well aware of it, but it really hasn't trans it hasn't shifted a lot of our traditional institutions. And I hope that's going to change quickly.
1: Okay, so so at the moment it's sort of sort of sitting there in the ether, but it's not necessarily going out as much as it should be. And we'll talk about education, I think, in more detail in a moment. Sharon, do you agree? Because the projects that you're doing and, and Liz you're doing as well is an indication that there is a shift, at least from the scientific community, to mm. take this very seriously.
2: Well, I think what's interesting is we now know that parts of the brain such as the hippocampus the the part of the brain that underpins our memory, and which is also involved in many mental health conditions like depression and schizophrenia, and also in Alzheimer's disease, that that area of the brain is actually capable of neurogenesis, um, so the growth of new neurons, that's so highly neuroplastic. And interestingly, what we also know, and a lot of the work that we've been conducting at the Brain and Mind Centre in collaboration also with Ian Hickey, um, is showing actually that there are certain things that do promote that neuroplasticity. So, there are certain things that also contribute to negative plasticity. So, not keeping ourselves engaged um, contributes to negative plasticity, as does depression and social isolation contributes to negative plasticity. That means but, going backwards, quite literally? That's right. right. Yeah, that's right. So, so, that those nice dendritic branches and the connections between all our neurons and synapses can be stripped away by actually not doing anything um, engaging. Or retirement. So. Or retirement, exactly. That's right. Um, you but but big things, things like, like, don't retire too early. That's the right. Word, Keep, going. Keep, Keep going. Keep <laughs> going. Um, so exercise um, and sleep um, are really good for promoting that neuroplasticity. As is uh, things like brain training, where we can really actually promote neuroplasticity in key parts of the brain. Um, and interestingly, also a lot of the work that we've done in mental health has also shown that um for example depression if someone is depressed and that's not treated then it can actually lead to a smaller hippocampus and in turn memory loss and conversely things like antidepressants promote that neuroplasticity and these neurotrophins these key chemicals that really promote that in our brain so we're starting to really um discover that now but i think what you said is right and that we don't actually have that message out to the community so we haven't translated that people don't really understand the mechanisms yet mm. can i just Jill, <clears throat> You know,
3: I've read a couple of books in preparation for coming here
2: <laughs> <in> about <laughs> neuroplasticity
3: I trying to even say the word. Because I can do the art bit. I said, like, oh, I better look, do the, look at the other bit. So these two really great books by Norman Dorridge about the brain that heals itself. And I think the main message I got from reading them was that that this is actually quite close. It's uh, been in our power as individuals to change our own brains through visualization, through meditation. And various other things, Um, but it really takes a long time. Takes at least six weeks that you have to do it for hours and hours, and that people. How old you are? Yeah, (laughs) but but loads of people couldn't do that, even though that might be something that's available to them. It's like you know, no one saw great change after the first week, and so they stopped. Mm. And so it's like this real puzzle. You know, it's like we all know how how well we should eat and how well we should exercise, and we don't really do it. You know, and it's like there's something about you know. So
1: commitment and engagement with yeah. it is, is is absolutely vital. Bernadette, you're proof of that, basically, which is that through retraining your own brain to to think about memory in an entirely new way, mm-hmm. you couldn't just yeah. rely on on the two year old genius, although she's still there, although oh, no, she is. Oh, you had to do so. something very differently. You talked us very briefly through how you actually did that, the production of that as, as well. Is if it, as Jill is saying, is it is it about a constant thing for you? Yes, it is constant. It's
7: constant um, reflection and and I suppose it's more accepted um, that we perform from the score when we're playing contemporary music, music that we're not so familiar harmonically with. Um, but when we're playing traditional music, there is a, quite a big movement with older pianists to say, stuff stuff the pressure, I'm going to play with the score. And so I'm I'm at this point where I say, do I, is that giving in? (laughs) Um, Do I keep trying to memorise? And so I'm at that point where I'm still trying to memorise. So I'm coming up with all these, you know... (laughs) Weird Take ways, this. and I found one that I think is quite original that maybe at some point I'm willing oh. to share for a price. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can sit now. Can I, Liz or Sharon, is there Bernadette's approach to, to not give up but to keep on trying, what does that say about her efforts to keep her brain active, I suppose?
0: So, I mean, I, I think you've demonstrated from a very early age your commitment to you know, your, your, you know, the enhancement of your brain through persistence and training and practice. Mm. so i think i think all of those things you know to continue to do things not to stop mm. there is some evidence however that can, from learning a language for instance that for those people who find it hard to learn a language that there are differences in the parts of your brain that you activate so if you're good at a language you activate those brains that are the language acquisition centers if you're trying really hard and pushing yourself then you then you activate different brain areas so even though it's hard and it's and it's stressful You're probably still, you know, generating brain plasticity in different brain areas. Mm. I I might
2: just add as well that one thing we do know about neuroplasticity is you shouldn't keep doing the same thing so building those new connections is about trying different techniques and challenging yourself with different right. things so I think that trying the new techniques and coming up with these things where you're going to get a promotion and you know sell it <laughs> sell your strategy to other musicians is mean, really important because that's very critical to engaging other parts of the brain so we talk about neuroplasticity in terms of restoration? Are Mm. we restoring a function that's already there or is it about compensation? Another part of the brain takes over from something that used to be very good at doing that. Um, And depending on the skill or the thing that we're trying to do, you might need to use both of those strategies, Mm. even though you're not consciously thinking of it in that way. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. And then in terms of
7: education, um, if, if like we do at the conservatorium, strongly urge our students to play from memory... Um, It's part of the curriculum. Um, It's not in all institutions that this happens, but we do strongly urge it. I I think that we need to know more about how our brain works so that we can actually teach memory. Mm. Um, It's really not talked about much
1: um, in the in the curriculum, mm. so, yeah. Maybe, maybe that's a good opportunity to talk further about education. I mean, Sam, mm. you, you raised this, of course, the value of art in our community, and that is exactly what, what the, the Mears Foundation is all about. But, you know, more and more we see the devaluing of art, mm. education in particular, music not being taught in our schools, and, you know, that this is not necessarily a focus, that it's seen as the fluffy Type of thing, and not necessarily something that is truly valuable for the, the the growth of a child's brain, if that makes sense. What what do you hope to see happen in this in this area?
6: Well, unfortunately, I think uh, education, arts education in schools, has become a, a victim of, uh, of funding and government funding cuts. And um, Liz and I were actually having a conversation before we started about the fact that it's really only private schools now that are that have. Um, a, uh, I guess, coherent and um, adequate arts programs. So that means that we're sending huge percentages of our children into the world without having a creative... Um, Uh, A creative education. And when you think about the way in which um, the workforce is changing and the jobs of the future, you know, jobs of the future will look very different to the way in which, uh, and the workforce will look very different to the way in which it it did when we were were entering it. And, uh, you know, creative skills will be incredibly valuable in in the new era of work. Mm -hmm. And yet we we have a whole generation that are going to be unqualified for Mm -hmm. that. Um, It's a really important discussion, and in fact, Liz, I was saying to Liz, she should be, you know, advocating. More from a scientific perspective, that yep. this focus on science and maths, which is obviously important, is the, the arts are equally important in terms mm. of education.
3: Uh, Jill, well, you wanted to say something? Well, just to say that you know you you you've you know shown us amazing creative thinking, and when we think about how arts are taught in schools and what creative thinking and, and critical thinking skills you know are about, it's like you can't have, you can't have um, Uh, I'm just thinking of Sir Ken Robinson. Sir Ken Robinson is a sort of bit of a god who talks about how schools are killing creativity because everything is about exams and everything is about making it right and correct and doing it a certain way. And this is just the opposite in terms of how you you make art because you have to create a space in which to take risks. And to take risks, you need to be able to fail, you know, that fail-better idea. So that thing about challenging... You know, at the beginning of the program, I remember someone saying to us at the dementia Art and Dementia program, why, why don't you keep it simple and you know, they could draw flowers? And in fact, we did see on the film them drawing the um, still life. Mm. But it's all about this other 360 look at everything. We're really missing out. We're really damaging, I think, mm. you know, people's access to what's truly possible. What
0: What worries me also is it's those... People from the lowest socioeconomic backgrounds that have the least access to the kind of things that would be the most helpful in terms yeah. of brain development and neuroplasticity and language acquisition right it's It's
1: interesting isn't it because the, the these people there's a, a huge number of people who are who are missing out. Um, who are not able to access these types of services. And, and, and to be able to have, I think, Liz, is what you were saying is, how do we harness the talents, the, the intellect of the scientists and bring them together with the artists as well? So is it up to the scientists, I guess, to, to work with the arts or the artists to make it happen? Or is it up to the arts to the approach to, to the science? How do we make those linkages work better to be more successful? What
0: do you think? So, how do you bridge those gaps? And it really is bringing together. And we know that from science that people can't run their own lab and make great discoveries. They need to work in partnership, mm. and we actually need to be answering questions that are really relevant to the community as well. So, I think it is about. It comes back to our early education system about making sure that we have STEAM, not STEM, that we include the arts. Full in steam STEM. ahead! Full <laughs> steam ahead! That we go full steam ahead. And, and that, you know, we have a community commitment to that as well. Nothing, I think, will change unless we engage the wider community, which is why it's so great to see so many people here about these really critical issues. So I think it is about... And a higher education level to make sure that we do run undergraduate courses that combine arts and science together and that help people with those kind of, with critical thinking.
2: Mm. Sharon, your perspective? Uh, I was just going to add, I think we're increasingly, as scientists, you know... Um, being coached or encouraged to engage more with community, with the arts, with research translation. It's kind of critical when we put in our applications to the peak medical funding body, the NHMRC, we do have to think about and, and demonstrate how our work will be translated out our track record of doing that. Um, the University of Sydney, we're very committed now to engaging with industry, with commercialisation. Our new education programs are very much engaged with that. So I think there is a little bit of a shift and a little bit of movement in, in that space, but of course... We do need STEAM. We also need STEM. I'm from the Faculty of Science. so <laughs> um, Big on. You know, we, we, we just need, yeah, we need to bridge them together. And I think we have made a good start, certainly at this mm. university in doing that.
1: Yeah. Um, I wanted to briefly, because I know we've got to throw open to questions very soon, um, briefly touch on one thing that a few of you are very firm on. This is not art therapy. It's a very big difference. Um, can, can you tell me what more about why this... If we're talking about the linkages between art and neuroplasticity, that that it is not art therapy, that is not the approach that we want to have.
0: This. Um, so I think Jenny, who ran our program, was very clear that that was not what this program was about. It was not about teaching art or teaching art skills. It was about the wider the wider construct. It was about improving self esteem, social participation, social skills. So it was about creating an environment that would help promote recovery. And so you didn't have to be good at art to enter into it, and we, you know we have a lot of people. And I think we get polarized to think, well, we're not going to do that. We're not going to play a musical instrument because we're not very good at it. Actually, as to what the benefits that we can derive from just emerging ourselves in that process. So it was really to make sure that it was we had the broadest access possible, you didn't have to be good at art, it was just about being in the room and being able to observe and engage and participate.
6: Mm.
1: And Sam, was that important for you as someone who was involved in the program from, from the other end, the flip side?
6: Well, actually, interestingly, uh, there was, there's a slight distinction I wanted to make, which is that one of the things that was really appealing to us with the program is that is that the art was, was an absolute focus. So yes. um, it was taught at the National Art School, it was taught by qualified, incredibly impressive artists. And so it didn't feel as though, um, for me, that um, the art was an incidental part of the program. And I guess you you probably understood from what I said earlier that um, the primacy of the art and valuing the art and the impact that it has is incredibly important to the way in which we fund. And that program was uh, was a really good example of that. So I think... um, I agree that no you know the, the participants didn't have to be good at art, but what was important was that the art uh, the art structure around the program was good yeah. so um I, that i I'd, I'd think that distinction's quite important because um I would not i guess you know the tail end of what I was saying earlier um, it's really important that um that we give we we treat the art with respect
0: I mm. guess. absolutely so I think that I mean that's a really important point, so having said that. It was actually also about, you know, a- allowing people to be able to focus their attention, to be able to observe things about the sense of pleasure and aesthetic. So I totally agree with you about that. The art was not not under no 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 not, I know We're on on the the same art page. Yeah.
1: <laughs> okay, I've got thousands of questions, but I am not allowed to spend my time just asking questions. Apparently, um, so if you have some questions for our panel. Um, and I'm sure you do, please please raise your hand. And there are a series of microphones that are going around the room. Um, and it is important. We've only got 10 more minutes left, so please do make sure, if you, if you don't mind, to to ask a question so that we, we'll be able to get through to as many people as possible. Um. Uh,
3: thank you. Very interesting um, discussion. Uh, I'm a psychotherapist, and I deal with el- the elderly. And given that we're, there's a lot of baby boomers out there, and we're all sliding... Um, Has the the Brain and Mind um, Institute, and I'm doing a master's there now, um, any longitudinal studies on not just art and creativity, but that constant engagement and and the innovation of what we engage in to create the new pathways, et cetera? Uh, How is the research framed to help what's going to happen down the line?
2: Thank you. Sharon? Um, Yeah, I mean, I could probably take that. Um, We're actually doing... We we know about... um, For degeneration of the brain, and particularly dementia, we know that about 50% of dementia, of the late-onset dementias, is due to things that are modifiable, modifiable risk factors. Um, So that's very important and really frames a lot of what we do in the Healthy Brain Ageing Programme. Um, So, while we, you know, are doing some projects in art, our projects are very extensive. So, we're looking at, you know, multiple programs where we can target those risk factors. We have brain training programs. We have trials looking at the use of antidepressants to see if they actually can promote neuroplasticity in the brain or changes in the hippocampus. We have... Trials of fish oils. We have trials in collaboration also with the Charles Perkins Center where we're looking at cardiovascular disease. And a really big focus we have at the moment is on sleep. Um, So we know that uh, sleep clears the brain of toxins, beta amyloid and these things while um, while we're sleeping. Um, And so we have a, a center of research excellence which is focused on that. A really big area as well um, is exercise, and that we do know exercise is one of the most powerful things that we do, so we have many trials looking at exercise. So you're absolutely right. The baby boomers, all, it's all going to hit us. We're going to have a quadrupling of dementia, you know, in the next 20 or 30 years. We really need to be thinking about this stuff. But actually, we need to think about it in midlife, not mm. as, not you know, we need to think about it now. Mm. Just, so just, go just,
1: home, get an early night's sleep, and go for a jog in the morning, okay? <laughs>
3: for the next 10 years. Easy. Can I just say one <laughs> of the... Thank you for your question. Jill? One of the most um, powerful and potent things that I learned about doing the program is the early-onset dementia, which is everything under 65. That's a really growing area, isn't it? So mm. that twi- you know, a third of the participants on our program had early-onset, which is quite a lot of people. Mm.
1: Uh, question? Yeah, up the back there. Thank you. The, there was a thing you were talking about which was a process in the brain
6: which was... Um, lowering inhibitions, and I couldn't quite understand what that actually was, and, and what the process was in the brain that, w-
1: through art, that was making people less inhibited.
2: Oh, okay. So, so there are a couple of examples. Um, One on the slide that I showed that had... I can't actually see you, sorry, so I'm just talking into... (laughs) um, So the the, the picture of the brain was actually showing changes in the frontal cortex of the brain. This part of the brain is really important for inhibiting things. It actually is what makes us socially appropriate so we don't blurt out things that we shouldn't say. Um, So (laughs) there are parts of the brain that are very important for that. So there's that study that actually shows that um, and the study had another a, a range of analyses that also showed that while that was happening, there were also changes happening in the parietal lobe to the brain further back in the parts that really do enable creativity and, and ex- visual expression. There's also evidence from frontotemporal dementia, which is a type of early-onset dementia, um, showing that um, people actually do become better in their technique um, of art um, and uh, but do have these other changes in emotion um so and one of the hallmark features of um uh frontotemporal dementia is also changes in inhibition, so we do think that these frontal parts of the brain are probably quite important in enabling that creativity um does that answer your question?
1: So, yeah. sounds great thank you um where's the next microphone? Thank you, if
5: you can hear me
2: um yeah, I um thank you so much for the talk I, I was really intrigued by the dementia program that you ran at the MCA um, and the interactive uh, capacity of that program. I used to run a lot of play workshops for um, children with autism and um, at the elderly and corporate events. And I just wanted to understand, do you think that there's a real capacity to incorporate more movement in art? Yeah. And maybe what, what is the scientific proof that that is beneficial? Or, mm? Yeah. I was yeah.
3: just uh, sharing with Sharon earlier that, you know, we're doing a lot with early learning at the moment as well, and um, tiny ones without language. And some of the things that they're doing really mirror what we've been doing with the art and de- some of the art and dementia pa- uh, people, <laughs> we call them patients anymore, <laughs> 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 um, that have lost language. And that there is this really interesting thing about the senses and the body, and gestural movement, and you're feeling yourself in a space which, you know, I'm not able to articulate very effectively. But as you say, you can see it, you know, and you can you can see. How. Also, we do understand that people learn in different ways; that mm-hmm. we're sort of more attracted to different learning styles. And um, kinesthetic learners, those that like to learn with their body, are not not so many of them as those that you know like to listen or see. And usually it's not just so black and white as that. We all have a mix, but you can. S- some people really in the program didn't respond to wanting to move, and then they can do something else. So the strategies are set up so that everyone can do what interact in some way and be okay in some way.
1: Mm. So it's not a one size fits all approach, no, it basically, really, which really makes sense. Isn't.
3: So that's Th- why I think it's quite hard to duplicate. Actually,
1: mm. thank you. Uh, the question up the back there.
5: Hi. Um, so when a lot, what a lot of people think about in the health space is making sure that enough people have access to um, these sorts of things. And one of the really cool ways that, thankfully, we have apps nowadays, which means there's a lot of access, um, the concept of brain training came up. And in the health space, there's lots of, uh, it recently been a lot of research on mobile health apps and their efficacy and validity in actually p- improving health outcomes. With regards to brain training, um, Is that kind of a viable way that we can start to get um, brain training out into the community?
2: Oh, it's one of my favourite questions. This is an excellent question. That was Um, one of mine, but I didn't get a chance. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. I'll I'll be quick. So brain training does work. So the randomised control trials do show that it works, and particularly in terms of memory. And this has been shown in mental health, schizophrenia, older people. Parkinson's disease, we've conducted many of those trials ourselves, but the evidence does show that you really need to be in a structured environment, mostly with a supervisor. You need to do it a couple of times a week. It needs to be graded. We use educational principles and work on people's strengths, build in people's weaknesses. Um, There is a little bit of a problem at the moment in the, I guess, the ethics of how these things are marketed, Mm -hmm. and um, that's one of my reasons for wanting to do the research studies is because I always felt that we needed to be very careful careful and clear before things are commercialised, are they properly evaluated, and is it ethical to sell these things to people? So there is actually a neuroethics group at the university, and we have actually put in for a grant this year to actually um, look at these things in more detail, and so these things do need to be regulated, and a lot of people are paying a lot of money for these apps, but there needs to be clear guidelines as to you need to do this for this many hours a day in order for it to work Mm. and of course even within that there's a lot of individual variability and some people do not respond to brain training apps so we have got a lot more work to do before Mm. I believe we can take it out into the community for them to be able to be Mm. translated properly. Fair Mm. enough. Is that brief enough? I think it makes (laughs) sense. So should I keep doing Sudoku? Pardon? Should I keep doing my Sudoku? No, you rubido? need
1: to do something different. <laughs> something different, okay. Yes. Great. That's very good, very good feedback. Thank you. A question just there in the middle? So,
2: yeah. thank you, ladies, for your insights. Um, my name's Genevieve, and I work in the storytelling space, predominantly in performance, stand-up, poetry. And we've talked a lot about music and um, fine arts. My question's linked with um, the early life, and particularly in Australia, the rise in... In anxiety and depression across Gen X, Gen Y, and uh, the new millennial generations, uh, it could be a list question, it could be a panel question. It's what are the longitudinal studies to highlight the positive effects of uh, performance and movement and dance to lowering anxiety and depression?
0: Well, not enough.
2: <laughs> we,
0: don't, we don't. You know, there are not enough studies. There's not. You know. And, you know, again, I think those are things that we need to really think about. And think about in terms of individual variability. You know, different things will have different effects in different people, different brains. Some people respond more to Mm. art. Some people are going to respond more to performance, you know, to movement. You know, there'll be a lot of individual variability, and we don't know enough about it. How do we we make, how do we personalise these kind of interventions for individuals? So, and at what age are they going to have their most effect? And for how long do you need to do them? What's the dose? We don't know enough. Mm. Good question. Thank you. Uh,
1: There was a question here. Thank you, sir.
5: I suppose I want to ask a question on behalf um, of the children uh, without voice who may have anxiety or may have uh, autism or um, any other number of uh, neurological issues. And so, I suppose the the question I would put is. are we we mixing up our approach to participation uh, with what the education system provides, which is largely around assessment and all the anxiety-inducing elements that go along with that when, in fact, some liberation and some genuine quality input might Mm -hmm. be the thing that they need? And is there a risk that for people who um, prove themselves... Irrespective of their backgrounds as being innovative or um, having some sort of merit, are considered as as people who benefit from art. But those who don't are considered as who benefit from art therapy. And by and by having that distinction, which I picked up on tonight, that we actually are at risk of excluding people through those sorts of distinctions, um, mm. when those people may have incredible drive and desire and benefits with their development and neuroplasticity, but are excluded through. The, as I say, the anxiety-inducing environment that is at school around music or art and things like
0: that. Mm. Thank you, uh, Liz. Um, I, I think if I got your question right, I mean I think that early exposure enrichment is true for all kids, you know, and probably more true for those with neurodevelopmental abnormalities, developmental issues, that they need more of that. You know, you know, kids who are, you know, at the other end of the scale probably going to do well anyway, but it's those people who are more marginalised who who have more issues that actually need more exposure to that. So I think that's that's true generally and I would hope that in looking at the interventions that we can provide we're going to actually be looking at where they can be most, the, the young people for which they can be most effective and trying to understand something about how to be more selective and specific about that. So I'm hoping that people won't be excluded on the basis that of whether they can actually participate in a school-based program, that we should be able to provide those types of program within our community with good partnerships like the ones that we've had with the Mears Foundation. Hmm.
1: Thank you. I think I've been, I've been granted one last question. So who, who's got it? <laughs> Over here, up the back here. Excellent. I'm
3: a high school student, um, and I particularly have a more logical mind. Uh, So what are some small activities that you would recommend we do that would help to um, enhance our more creative part of the brain? Like some small activities that we can do in between, like study breaks?
1: That's the best final question ever. (laughs) Very practical, take home. Who wants to start? Um, Bernadette, what, what about you? What are some practical things that people can do?
7: Oh, um, well, try memorizing
1: something. Because <laughs> <laughs> that reduces anxiety. Doesn't yeah, it? absolutely. That's a good point. I, I concur. Jill, <laughs>
3: your perspective? Well, but. I actually think that thing about exercise and movement are really linked, and that you can choose to move your body in a different way or a certain way. You're just bound to take, you know, rather than just sitting, we're just sitting all the time, aren't we, and looking at a screen. So we could all turn our phones off, actually. And I'll get up and do some walking.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.